I've been asked before I start if I would repeat the um, timeline takeaways in case anybody's missing any. So um, here we go for the last time. One, God knows the end from the beginning. Two, we're born into a war zone. Three, God sets the terms. We come to him as he prescribes. And we'll talk about that a little bit tonight. Reveal, reverse, restore. That's one of the ways he works with us. The plot is communal. What we experience is as much for the community, the kingdom community, as for our individual lives. Helplessness is helpful. And that whole um, circumcision story, I owe to, in addition to Joshua, I owe to uh, a wonderful book on the Sabbath, um, which is called The Rest of God by Mark Buchanan. And somebody has read it. So anyway, it's great. We really, really commend it. You know, we don't um, justify any of the other Ten Commandments, breaking any of the other Ten Commandments, but we've pretty much pitched the Sabbath and it really matters. Six is cry out to God. Seven is, or yeah, seven, sorry, um, forget the numbers. The next one is remember. Uh, and the next is um, seeing supernaturally or supernatural sight. And then we have three more. Um, that we will finish tonight, <clears throat> and then we'll be, we'll be at the end of our timeline takeaways. Um, also, we may go out of order a bit. I may go out of order on the handout, but all the verses you will find are there. Um, so I'm kind of surprised anyone is here since we titled the talk in advance was going to be on obedience. Um, so, <laughs> you know, it's not a sexy-sounding subject, and I always balk at it. My, my story for this is the, one of the first times that I really was kind of tasked to, to speak on this subject. I was doing a retreat for a, a church in Jacksonville. And a few weeks before that retreat, Judith McNutt was speaking. And so she did a healing seminar. And I thought, well, I'll just go over. I'll get to know these guys. And I'll, you know, get a feel for the church. And, and it's wonderful to hear Judith. And... Um, so she did what she does, you know, spoke on healing and the Holy Spirit and the love of God. And everybody is like crying and forgiving their fathers and everyone's happy and everything. And I'm thinking, I got a harder thing to say. You know, why can't I have what she has to say? So I went home. I was sitting on my, on my deck out back, my porch, and just kind of sitting there, you know, praying and grumping about um, what I had to say compared to what she had to say. And this bird came down and almost sat right on my foot, but, you know, right beside it and started to sing and sing and sing and sing. It was really uncanny because, you know, they don't usually get that close to you. And the Lord just spoke to me and said, you can only sing the song I put in your throat. <laughs> Isn't that wonderful? So this is really the song in my throat. And it's not because I get obedience. It's because I'm really terrified of it. And so every time I get, you know, an assignment from God, it's a big battle. Um, but I recognize that in the scriptures. And so I'm really um, sharing to you from, 
my heart tonight. Um, nothing has given me more joy or yielded more fruit than the call to obey Jesus. So I want to talk about obeying Jesus from a few different facets tonight, a few different angles. Um, what it isn't, one thing it does that we usually don't think of, um, things that, some things that I think block obedience, some examples, both biblical and contemporary. But I'll start out reading the definition Neil looked up for me because it goes back to one of our t timeline takeaways. Compliance with someone's wishes or orders or acknowledgement of their authority. So back to God sets the terms. Obedience is acknowledging the authority of God in our lives because he made us and he, he is permitted to set the terms. Uh, it's his right. But let me say what it isn't. Um, I'm not talking about a new law. I'm not talking about anti-grace. I know that um, there's lots of conversation about that in our, you know, in our fellowships these days. We don't earn God's lavish love by obeying him. I, the way I figure it is if I was dead in my sins and God brought me to life, um, there's no, I, I couldn't lift an obedient pinky to save myself after that, if that makes any sense. We were dead, and, and I'm still dead in a way as, in so far as I, I, there's no obedience that will earn his, uh, his love and favor. I have his love and favor. I'm still incapable of earning it. Um, whether I've just come to Jesus or been a Christian for a long time, it's God's grace in me uh, that allows me to respond to him. So I'm not... Um, uh, Everything I say is, is, I hope, undergirded by grace. There's no gear shift after coming to know Jesus that suddenly now it's up to us to stay in the kingdom by doing things right. But here's the thing. We don't get to throw out obedience either. And we've been noticing lately the Great Commission, the wording of the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the earth or the end of the age. I never actually noticed the obey part. You know, I, we always talk about it in terms of going out and making disciples and sort of we think of it in conversion terms. And what does he say? Teaching them to obey. That's our job. Uh, that's the Great Commission. Teach disciples to obey me. This is what Jesus asks of us. And it's my heart for tonight. But it's become a real countercultural message, I think, even, even in the church. And I brought a bunch of, or I, I thought I brought and didn't, um, a number of quotes to support that, but they're not hard to find. We're not big on obedience in the church. And I just wanted to um, uh, give you a, just a little thing that's been very helpful to me. A number of years ago, I was in Israel, and we usually take about a half an hour on the Mount of Beatitudes just to consider um, the teachings of Jesus and be quiet and be alone. 
And as I was just sitting there thinking and praying and looking over to the cliffs of Arbel, um, right above the Galilee, I had this funny little kind of waking picture um, of a little animal, like a little mountain lion or something small, you know, like a cat kind of a thing, lying on its belly with its paws right here. And it had something delicious, like right between its paws. It was just about to eat. And along came a bigger something, I don't know what, cat, you know, lion, I don't know, and just like in a flash, just shot by it and took the thing it was about to eat so there was nothing there. And this little feline face just sort of looked up and, and, and it was very confused. Um, like, what happened? What just happened here? I'm hungry and it's gone and I don't understand. And who was that? And, and so I, I was asking the Lord, well, it was so vivid. What does this mean? You know, where am I in it? Where are you in it? Am I missing something? Did somebody steal? Did I steal something? I don't get it. Who's who? You know, figure it out. No inspiration whatsoever. I figured later, maybe it was the falafel I had for lunch. You know, it was just like, I don't know. Weeks, I had no clue. Prayed about it, put it on the back burner. Just, you know, no inspiration. Years later, as I was preparing to... Um, to speak to a group in a church and praying, driving in the car and praying about what it was that the Lord wanted me to say, that whole vision came back into my mind with the scripture from John 4:34 that says, um, where Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. And it was like the Lord was saying, this is the church and the enemy is stealing their meal." And one of the things that obedience is to us is our nourishment. We think of it as, you know, the thing we do for him and it's good for whatever, for other people, the people we serve, whatever he's calling us to. But obedience nourishes the church as, it, as obedience nourished Jesus. His food was to do the will of him who sent him. And, and we need to know that... Um, that it nourishes us too and will be malnourished. We're starving. Are we starving for the nourishment of obedience? Um, while obedience has been the sweetest fruit of discipleship, when I have tasted it, it's also been the most difficult challenge. Um, I just fight hard. I think I'm a coward, um, and I will find any reason not to do what I'm afraid to do. And this leads to principle number um, 10, which we call the oh-no principle. What blocks obedience? Um, and this is sort of sh shorthand in our family for, you know, the kind of internal resistance, the flesh. How many people can you think of in the scriptures who were asked by God to do something they were loath to do? Just give me names. Jacob. Moses, Gideon, Gideon Jonah, Jesus. Jesus, yes, what was the Garden of Gethsemane all about? Um, yeah, it goes on and on. Actually, it's just about everybody if you really think about it. Um, so it seems universal, and it's worth recognizing the trend in our own lives so we can resist the resistance that comes, I think, honestly, if, if anybody in here is like me, that comes almost automatically when God 
puts something before us that's a call to do. Could be small, could be large. It's, it's back to takeaway number two. We're born into a war zone. There's something that's right ready to steal that meal as soon as it's put before you. Um, there's going to be internal resistance. So let me first share with you a small story um, in which I'm the anti-hero. Um, I was on an airplane uh, during the time of my tenure leading CMJ, and I was in Pittsburgh, actually, for a, some kind of a ministry dinner at Trinity, and it was Peter Moore's first thing as dean, and all kinds of people were there, and I was terrified, of course, and whatever. We had, but it was a marvelous night of um, testimony and support and whatever, and there were other ministry things going on. And when I was done with this week, um, I got on the plane, and I was just cooked. I was done. I was fried. And as I got on the airplane, Neil gets on an airplane, and he's like, he can't wait to see who he's going to talk to and who's there and what interesting people are on the plane. I get on the airplane and I wish for blinders. I just want to be, I'm an introvert and I was just done. So as I stepped into my, it was a two-seater on this side. And as I, you know, came to put my stuff down, the guy who was sitting by the window looked at me with this like expected, like with a Neil look on his face, like, hello, you know, we're going to talk. wonder what you're like. And I was just like, oh, God, no, you know, I'm so tired. I had my book, you know, ready. Like, so while I was sitting down, I'm just, you know. So I got my face in my book. It, I, it could have been upside down, you know. And I'm, and I'm saying to the Lord, I, I've so done things for you this week, you know. And he looks weird. And... I just can't do it. It won't matter. I don't care where he went to school or whatever I'm going to ask. I just, please don't make me do this. And it was just pressing and pressing. You know how it is? Your heart starts to race and you know it's God. And I'm just fighting. The flight attendant comes up the aisle and what does he want to drink? Orange juice. I want a Diet Coke. She leans over to hand him the orange juice. He reaches up to get it. Can you see what's coming? <laughs> Boom. It's all over me. His whole glass of orange juice is on my face, in my lap, on my clothes. You know? So guess what? We're talking. <laughs> He's like, I'm sorry. I'm like, it's all right. Like, Here, take my whatever. And, you know, so that was it. That was my, I felt like the Lord was saying, sweetheart, we could do this dry or we could do this wet. We're going to do it. So, so, I mean, to my shame, I shouldn't like to tell this story, but it's like, because I'm not that different today. And, and this letter that I'm about to read you is dated 1997. Here's who he was. He, um, he was a Jesuit priest who had left the priesthood because he realized he didn't know Jesus. He had reasons for being a priest, but he was just going through the motions. And he wanted to tell me about it. And he wanted to know what I did. 
And what about Jesus being Jewish? And, you know, we had, a, we had this conversation about faith and about knowing Jesus. And then we said goodbye. And I didn't know, you know, what that was about, but it was about something. And um, a little while later, I got this letter. Dear Marcia, this letter to you is long overdue. My apologies. I really enjoyed talking with you on the plane to Jacksonville in January. Listen to this. Would we have talked if I hadn't spilled my orange juice? (laughs) And I thought he couldn't tell. (laughs) I was so engrossed in our conversation that I was surprised when it was time to land in Jacksonville. So our conversation really, I'm just reading you excerpts. So our conversation really opened my mind and my heart. As I mentioned on the plane, I've been away from Christianity for many years, but something wonderful has happened. A few weeks ago during a Sunday school class at my church, I accepted Jesus back into my life. After having gone up to that point a number of times in the last year, year and a half, only to turn back, this is the first time in my life that I can recall having a genuine although undeveloped, relationship with Jesus. On the plane, we agreed that there are no coincidences and that God brings us the people we need. Therefore, I am very grateful to have met you. And I think, you know, to my shame about, like, what was at stake in my refusal there? You know what I mean? It's sobering. And that's a little thing. There, I could tell you lots of refusal stories or attempted refusal stories. You know, um, there's something at stake here, and we need to resist the resistance. We need to beware of the oh-no principle because when God speaks, something in us is going to dig in our heels. It's just part of our flesh. It's just there, and we need to beware of it. So I want to look at a couple scenes tonight that bear on the subject of learning to obey God more consistently. Um, And maybe I could say um, that misinterpreting the evidence is one of the factors that, that blocks our obedience. So the first is a scene from the Wilderness Wanderings, and we've we've referred to it already. This is the Numbers 13 and 14 refusal when the spies um, come back from scoping out the land and, um, and they give their report and then everybody votes. And this is, I'll just read you a little bit from, from Numbers 13. Um, the spies, when they came to the valley of Eshkol, they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes so large that it took two of them to carry it on a pole between them. They also brought back samples of pomegranates and figs Um, And it goes on. After exploring the land for 40 days, the men returned to Moses, Aaron, and the whole company of Israel at Kadesh in the wilderness. They reported to the whole community what they had seen and showed them the fruit. This was their report to Moses. We entered the land you sent us to explore. It is indeed a bountiful country, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here is the kind of fruit it produces. But the people living there are powerful, and their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. 
The Amalekites live in the Negev, the Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country, the Canaanites live along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and along the Jordan Valley. But Caleb tried to quiet the people so you can hear their murmuring as they stood before Moses. Let's go at once and take the land, he said. We can certainly conquer it. But the other men who had explored the land with him disagreed. We can't go up against them. They are stronger than we are. So they spread this bad report about the land among the Israelites. The land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes to live there. All the people we saw were huge, et cetera, et cetera. And they create their report. Um, so they, um, they cry out to the Lord, and you know the rest of the story. The whole community begins to actually talk about stoning Joshua and Caleb. And the Lord says, it's interesting, they say of the Lord, he must hate us because of this trial. And what the Lord says to, to Moses is, how long will these people treat me with contempt? They must hate me. Do they not remember? Do they not remember the Red Sea? Um, so what I want you to see is that the only thing that divided those who were ready to go and those who were not ready to go is how they interpreted the evidence. The facts on the ground were the facts on the ground. You know, it wasn't worse for some than others. It was just how they interpreted the evidence. One group interpreted the facts on the ground to mean God hated them. And the other group looked to what they knew of God despite the facts on the ground. What they'd experienced of God. And this is where remembering comes in as a fortifying force in our lives. The God who parted the Red Sea could surely deal with the giants. God responds, almost sounds incredulous to me. I may have said, said this earlier. He says in Numbers 14, 22, they've all seen my glorious presence and the miraculous sign I performed. They know all they need to know to obey him. Um, and as a result, that whole generation must die in the wilderness before they eventually lead, um, can be led into the land. So this leads to the next to last timeline takeaway, which, which is ransomed but rebellious. It was possible then, and I believe it's still possible now. I think that was Francis Schaeffer's point when he talks about bowing twice, once as Savior and once as Lord, it's possible to be ransomed by God and to refuse to walk in his ways. And maybe it's because, because there are so many who are doing that um, that we're giving the faith a bad name in a way in this country. And I'll, I'll say another word about the effect that has on our youth at the end. It's possible to choose plan B out of fear and rebellion. It's possible to choose plan B because we misinterpret our hardships or our sorrows and bail on obedience. Will we conclude that God isn't good after all or that he couldn't really stoop to care about our sorrows? Or can we lean in when it gets hard and remind each other that he's faithful and take the great risk or the perceived risk of obeying him. That's when plan A begins. Okay, so we're going to look at another scene out of order again, but um, this time in the New Testament. And the real question is like, what does it take to get on this timeline? 
What does plan A take? And it's so simple. It just takes obeying God. It's just obeying God. In Luke 19 and also Matthew 25, we have the very, very familiar parable of um, the three servants who are each given, you know, um, talents to, to spend. And you know the story. Um, I love the wonderful unity of thought in the whole timeline. It's so obvious that it's the same author um, because this is really dealing with the same thing. Um, so I just want you to see one part. You know, the first guy gets an amount, he goes out, he invests it, he makes money and he gets commended. Same for the second one. Gets a little less, invests it, comes back with a return, he's commended. Then the last guy, um, what does he do? He digs a hole and, and buries it, sits on it. And, um, and then he says this, reading from Matthew 25 to 24, then the man who'd received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. Think about what sort of accusation this is. If God plants no seed in a field and then asks you to go collect the crop from that field, what is he asking? He's asking the impossible. He's asking something he has not equipped you to do. There's, there's, there's an accusation here that, that, you would ask, that God is asking of us things that we're not, he's not even able to make us do. You reap where you haven't sown. You're not able to sow in me what I need to obey you. Does that make any sense? That that's, that's what I'm hearing in this, is, 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 is an accusation against God. Isn't this what Israel said to God in the wilderness? God is asking us of something we cannot do. Hebrews said he's the God who turns weakness into strength. In fact, it's his glory and delight to do so, and it's always been his intention. Excuse me. So once again, we see someone choosing plan B out of fear and rebellion, backing away from perceived risk, misinterpreting the evidence. God asks the impossible, measuring himself, I am not equipped, but not taking God's measure. Before we move on to better news, I want to give you an image for plan B and why we sometimes choose it over plan A. Choose it over stepping onto the timeline. Um, there's a wonderful better news coming, but second, the second, third section, excuse me, on your handout could be titled Looking for Plan B. And this is just a parenthesis I've been thinking about late, lately. I, I really want you to think over with me and hopefully you'll... Um, do good things with it and, and, um, and take it even further. But here's what I've been noticing. I, I see two kind of parallel things in the scriptures, in the prophets. I said earlier that when God says here to Abraham, I'm going to choose a place for you and I'm going to take you to the place I've chosen, which he does. He chooses a place where they're desperate for water. 
They go from Egypt, where the Nile overflows its banks three times a year, and they go to Canaan, where they need rain. If you go for a year without rain in Israel, you're in trouble. If you go two years, you're really in trouble. And if you go three years, you're looking at loss of life. So that's where God took them. He took them into a place where, where they needed his provision. And he was ready to provide. When we, um, and, and, and it's back to our helplessness is helpful. When we're in Israel, we, one of my favorite places to take everyone is up to the headwaters of the River Jordan because there's a spring there. I think it's like 66 billion gallons of water come out of this spring um, every year, and it's fresh. Uh, it's living water. Living water in Hebrew terms is moving. It's moving, it's fresh, it's clean, it's not stagnant. And um, we sit down there and we read from Jeremiah 2.13, and Jeremiah 2.13 says this, My people have done two evil things. They have abandoned me, the spring of living water, and they have dug for themselves cisterns that hold no, cracked cisterns, excuse me, that hold no water at all. Think about that. Sitting beside, I tell people, take pictures of this water. This is as close as you can get to taking a picture of Jesus. Because he says this is what he's like. And, and video it. I mean, it's rushing water. I have pictures of this water in every room in my house. Because I'm a coward. And I need, when God is telling you to do something and the oh no is rising up, I need to look at that water and say, you're going to be the same God to me tomorrow that you were yesterday. Why would you build a cistern next to living water? I mean, why? Just like, why? Fear, fear of what? It's going to run out. It's going to stop. Which is, if you think about it, if you believe that God's providing, you're, you're, you're really fearing God's going to stop being God. He's going to stop being to you who you need him to be and who he knows you need to be. There's another um, wonderful kind of parallel just keep thinking. Helplessness is helpful. Helplessness is helpful. We need to not be afraid of, of our helpless um, inclinations. Uh, this is from, I forgot to mark it. This is from Isaiah 50. And, um, oh, maybe I did mark it. Uh, no. Isaiah 50. 10, yeah, 10 and, and the beginning of 11. And it's a parallel image. Listen to this. If you are walking in darkness without a ray of light, trust in the Lord and rely on your God. But watch out, you who live in your own light, and warm yourselves by your own fires. This is the reward you will receive from me. You will soon fall down in great torment. You're walking in pitch black with God, don't light your own fire. Stay in the dark. God is better than light providing for yourself. And that the way I'm thinking about it, and again, we said at the beginning, plan A and plan B are not theological terms, so you, know, you can't be too precise. But as I think about this, I feel like both of those are examples of choosing plan B, choosing to provide for your unbelief. 
And that's what we need to be afraid to do. So, okay, be practical. What, what does it really look like? Um, and here's just a tiny thing from our family, and I didn't ask her permission to share this, but I've shared it before. I'm trusting it's okay. Our daughter, Sarah, went to um, get her doctorate at Cambridge, and during her years there, I think she was there, what, four years maybe? She went, you know, after her mid-20s. And she didn't have very much time. She had a lot of work to do, not much discretionary time. And, um, and she was praying about what the Lord wanted her to do with that little bit of, that little tithe of time that she could, you know, sow into the kingdom apart from just whatever she was doing. So she's asking the Lord, where would you like me to serve? But also in her head, she's got this sense that she really knows from God she's going to get married someday and wants to be married. And the clock is ticking. And she's thinking, it would be nice if, you know, where I served would be somewhere where I might meet somebody, you know. Where God called her was with undergraduates. And she wrestled with that. That's what she'd done for the years before she moved to England was college ministry. And God was calling her after her college years, after her seminary years, now in, you know, Ph.D. work, to go and sow her life into college ministry where there were no prospects. Um, but, but that's what she did. Um, she obeyed God. But it was hard. It was like, I don't have that much time, and I'm going to spend the rest of it with my face in a book. I went to visit her um, shortly after she got there. And we went to visit this fellowship where she was meeting with sweet groups of girls and you know, doing wonderful things. And there was this guy playing the piano. And I, I said to her, Sarah, who is that guy playing the piano? He's leading worship, and he is just awesome. She said, Mom, he's an undergraduate. He's my son-in-law. <laughs> and he is so cool. So, and he's British. And he's British. Yes, that's right. We married a Brit. Uh, <laughs> so... Am I saying that looking for fellowship with other single people is wrong? No, just that we need to learn to listen to God and obey him. And anything else, any plan B, has the potential to lead us astray. Dig our own cisterns, lighting our own fires, go where the guys are. Our only, our, what nourishes us and is our joy is listening and obeying to God, obeying God, listening to and obeying God. Okay, scene three. Um, this is a much more domestic scene, and from the life of Elisha, this is one of my very favorite um, things, also because I see myself in it in some ways. Um, but uh, this is from 2 Kings 4, and I'm going to read you this story. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Listen to the accusation there. There's always an accusation. God hates us. The man served the Lord, and now his family is suffering. It's implied, but it's there. Elisha replied to her, how can I help you? Tell me what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing there at all, sir, she said. 
except a small jar of olive oil. Elisha said, go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars, and as each is filled, put, one, put it to one side. She left him and shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her, and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, bring me another one. But he replied, there is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. I so identify with this woman. If God asked you, what do you have? What do you have to change the kingdom? What do you have that you can contribute to my kingdom? What would you say? I'd say what she said. I'd be looking in my little tiny oil jar saying, you got to be kidding. Nothing. You see me. You know nothing better than I even know nothing. I got nothing to offer you. When God places a challenge before us, we can't measure our own strength. And say, we got nothing here at all, sir. And we can't afford to measure the size of the task. That's what Israel did when they balked at entering the land and fighting the giants. What? Fill every pot in the village with this? The only measure we can take is a measure of who God is. Who he's shown himself to be. Who we've recalled him to be. And if we measure the right thing, we can obey. It's just like what Gideon says when he, you know, says he's the, he's, I got nothing here at all, sir. I'm the smallest of the small. What does God say to him? Go out in the strength you have. Am I not sending you? Don't measure you. Measure the Lord. It does, you doesn't matter. That's how, that's how glorious he is. The only, the danger, the oh no principle is right here. Like, Will we tip out our nothing if we're told to, when we're told to? Will we spend our lives in obedience no matter how we measure them? Just do it because it's, it's only God's, that's the only measurement that matters. And we get stuck there. We don't do the multiplying, only the pouring out. And that's number 12. We obey, God acts. So it doesn't matter how small or how tiny whatever it is God is putting before you to do is. We obey. He acts. Noah could build the whole ark, but he couldn't bring the rain. Elijah could build the fire in the prophets contest with the prophets of Baal, but he couldn't make it come to flame. The disciples could begin to share their five loaves and two fish with 5,000 people for whatever good that would do. They couldn't multiply it. We obey. God acts. Where is God asking you? Where is God asking us to obey? We had a man 
a while ago begin a men's retreat at Redeemer by saying, what's God asked you to do already that you haven't done? You're waiting to hear something new this weekend? What's he already said that you need to do? Neil had something come to mind in a flash. It was a men's retreat, so I don't have to talk about this. Um, he, he's, he remembered the point in the road when the Lord told him he had to stop drinking coffee. It's a little thing, but he knew God told him to stop drinking coffee, and he hasn't had a cup of coffee since. Um, it could be such a small thing, but let's ask ourselves the same question this weekend. Lord, where are you asking us to obey you? The young adults in my life frequently ask, how do you know what God wants you to do? How can you tell when you're hearing from him? And, and I have a couple of answers. I think God often asks us to stop doing something we have a sense is wrong already. Those are no-brainers. Is he bringing conviction about our computer habits, our eating, drinking, or sexual habits? Is he challenging us to repent of resentments towards particular brothers and sisters? These things we don't really need to have much uncertainty about. Yes, he is. And yes, you can. No matter how weak or powerless you feel in the face of whatever it is, it's not about measuring you. God can do it in you. But often, I've observed, God calls us to some obedience or service which seems either impossible or highly unlikely to be God. And it's then that we say to our kids who are asking us, do what you think you hear and see what happens. A speaker at our recent um, Anglican conference at Ridgecrest put it this way, obedience precedes understanding. The phrase is variously attributed to the church fathers, George MacDonald, and a host of others, and I thought I invented, because... Um, <laughs> Because it's do, then see. Do, then see. And the book that, um, that Jonathan and Neil were talking about is called The Ten Second Rule by Claire DeGraff. And that's really basically his point in this book as well. It's just like, if you think you're hearing from God, if you give yourself too long, you'll talk yourself right out of it. Just do it, whatever it is. Just do it and see what happens. So do, then see. Um, and I'll give you a couple examples. Um, one, sub, one ridiculous and the other maybe a little sublime. But the ridiculous one is um, uh, I was taking Hebrew class years ago and driving to my first lesson. And I passed a McDonald's on the way. And I, you know, made a little calculation that I was going to get lunch when I was done with my Hebrew class. Went into the Hebrew class. There must have been maybe 30 people in the room. And it was just introductory. And we all didn't, we didn't have a chance to meet her. An Israeli woman, Jewish Israeli woman was our teacher. We left our checks on the table as we left. I didn't get a chance to shake hands with her or anything. And then I was driving home. And I'm in the left-hand turning lane going into McDonald's. And, um, and I'm hungry. And, and, the, and the Lord, I thought, maybe said... I want you to fast for your teacher, Rita. And I, and I thought, oh, that's not God. <laughs> that's because I'm hungry. You know, that's not God. That can't be God. Really, I don't think that's God. Um, 
And, you know, the traffic is behind me, and I'm in the turning lane, and, I'm, and it's, it, it's getting intense. It's like the, like, like the airplane, like, am I going to turn or not? Is it, is that, am I supposed to fast? Why would I have to fast? I'll just pray for it. Anyway, I figured it's better, you know, to obey than not obey. So it sounds good, but it wasn't. Like, I was just so crabby about it. I got out of the lane. I went home. My kids came home from school. I had to make them a snack, and I couldn't eat anything. And So I'm outside. They're inside eating, and I'm sweeping the porch, occasionally praying for my Hebrew teacher. I'm trying to focus on praying for my Hebrew teacher, you know, whom I hadn't met, and thinking, I wonder if I can eat dinner. You know, was that even God? Like, how long do I have to do this before I just say, okay, we're done praying for your Hebrew teacher? When the phone rang... And I went to get the phone. It was in those days, you know, on the wall, long cord. Picked up the phone, and this heavy Israeli accent on the other end. And it's my Hebrew teacher. And she says, I hope you won't mind my calling you at home. But I noticed from your check that your husband is a minister. And I wondered if you'd mind if I asked you a few questions about Jesus. And my heart was prepared. My heart was, that was God. What do you know? <laughs> you know? Like, who's ever sure? Really, can we just be honest? Who's ever sure? You know that you know that you know. That you know, you just have to do it. Do what you think you hear and see what happens. I was saying at dinner, I'm so psyched to be 60. because, And it'll be better to be 70. Because, like... It was harder then than it is now because I've seen so many gracious denouements, you know, so many gracious resolutions of, of things that felt tortured at the time. Um, so, so that's my ridiculous example. And here's another one. And it's characteristic that, like, I'm just a total coward. I was afraid to come here this weekend. I'll be afraid to do the next retreat. It's just the way I'm wired. I have to ignore it. But we're... Uh, this team that I assemble, which is me and another guy, a Jewish believer, are invited to lead a, um, a Jewish evangelism seminar in Santiago, Chile, as guests of the diocese um, and of Bishop, and I'm blanking on his name. Yeah, uh, no, um, it'll come to me. Um, so we're in the, pardon me? Yeah. So we're in the city. There's a large Jewish community in the city, and wonderful people have pulled it together. The first time I ever spoke with a translator, that's a really hard idea to keep going. I'm like, stop. I mean, I forgot he was there. and I'm just... um, so, so we do these talks, and, um, and a woman came up to us afterwards and said, uh, would you come home with me? Because I'd like you to pray for my mother. <laughs> and 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 the the guy I was with, um, you know, we we decided, yeah, okay, well, sure, you know, we're here. And she was she was a Jewish woman, a Jewish believer. Her mother was not a a, a believer. And um, but we got in her car and drove to her house, and and um, she got there first and went in, and we followed in the door or followed up to the door. And her sister, we didn't know there was a sister there, her sister came to the door and, and, and brought us in. But as she opened the door, she said, we're not believers in Jesus here. And we were like, 
are we supposed to come in or do we go now? Or, you know, where's the one who asked us? And, you know, so, but she got out of the way, you know, and we went in and, and, um, and so then we saw the woman who'd invited us and she said, let me get my mother. So she goes back into a room and this, she leads out this woman who is like, she's, she's like 500 years old and she's, and her face is absolutely, like, fixed. She's just not looking anywhere or at anybody. And she just comes out like this. And it's a big production. And they get her in the chair. And then we're supposed to pray for her. And we don't really, we can't quite get what for. We don't know what's wrong with her. But she's 500 years old. And we're not expecting her, you know, to be 30 all of a sudden. We don't know what. So, but it's okay. We just pray you know we just get there and we pray and pray and pray for her and nothing changes nothing not her face nothing but we're done praying so we go over and they set this coffee table and you know we're all like having tea and cookies and talking to each other in our various languages and mom is over there and her face is just the same nothing's moving and the Lord begins to speak to me and tell me that I need to go and pray for her. And no, go and tell her the gospel. And I'm just like, oh, I can't do that. That's why I asked him to come with me. He's a Jewish believer. I just brought him. Tell him. So I'm refusing and refusing and waiting for David to get the idea and giving him looks and... You know, and mom is just like, you know, so finally I just thought, I, I really thought I was just going to keel over, you know, that I wouldn't be able to get on the plane if I, so I got up. David said to me later, he said, you broke every rule in the book. And I was like, I'm not surprised. I didn't know there was a book. But I went over to this woman and I mean, my heart is beating and I knelt down on the floor, and she doesn't even look at me. She's still, on, her face is on the wall. And I, and I just said to her, whatever, I, don't need, I can't even tell you, something about the Passover, the blood of the lamb, and that was Jesus. And his blood liberates us, and, and it's by his, you know, he's the Passover lamb. And you know what? She lit up. Her face, and it wasn't profound, and there was a translator, in, but her face just she, just, she just lit up, and she looked at me, and she said, I knew it. I want to know him. So we said, well, okay, we'll pray for you. So we prayed for her, and she gave her life to Jesus, just like that. So then the woman who greeted us at the door said, well, I'm not convinced yet, but would you pray for me that if it's really true, I would know too? And so we prayed for her. They gave me a little present, a little plastic flower thing, <clears throat> and um, I have it hanging in my office at home, or I wouldn't believe it even happened. It was such a bizarre experience. But again, it's like it makes me afraid of my resistance. And I want to make you afraid of that resistance because we see it in the scriptures and we need to have some caution about it. Um, even the small things are important. Um, 
usually, I brace myself when I teach this because I know that I can't stand up here until I've done my business with God and he always asks me something, usually something very, you know, small and private, vulnerable, in my home, whatever. But, but I have to obey him or I, you know, I, I couldn't stand here. Um, before David kills Goliath, he says to, to King Saul, um, I killed the lion and the bear. So I can kill Goliath. And, you know, think about that. He's trained by small things before. That's one of the ways of God is he trains us gradually and then we're able to take on the big stuff. So um, let me close with this thought. The, The image of faith in Hebrews is corporate. Our job is to pass on the faith to the next generation so that the timeline of God's kingdom purposes on earth moves towards its conclusion and we each play a part in our own generation. Um, you'll talk today about the Hebrews relay race. There was a study, um, a national study on youth and religion done a while back. Lots of books have been written about it. Um, And if you're interested, I will let you know what they are. They're filled with statistics. But one of the things they say is that, um, that a lot of youth in America are fake Christians. They identify themselves as Christians, but actually they had a kind of therapeutic sense of what the Christian faith was about. They believed that they were, they were Christians to make their lives better. And they did a follow-up study 10 years later, and most no longer claimed to be Christians. But the ones who did had some interesting things in common. Two of them were predictable, Bible reading and prayer. But up in the top few was this surprising to me one which is that one common factor that kids who made it through adolescence with an ardent faith were ones who said they'd had to pay a price for their faith during adolescence. Isn't that interesting? Obedience nourishes us. And the very things we think we better not tell them about because they might bail on the faith are the things that lace them tight with Jesus. It's obedience. It's the hard stuff. Bowing in Schaefer's words, demonstrating um, his lordship, taking up their cross. Those are the things that will give them and us plan A lives. And so I just, I just want to end with this thought because it, it just, I just love it. See if I can do it. Um, Obedience is a mutual delight. It's a mutual delight. Um, Psalm 147.11 says, The Lord's delight is in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. He delight. Think of that. Can you picture God delighted about you? Not just like, I love you because I have to, but... They're absolutely, he's delighted in your faith, in your trust. And Luke 10, Jesus sends out the disciples and they come back and they're all excited. And he tells them they're excited about the wrong thing and what they ought to be excited about. But then he has a little private moment with the father. And it says, at that time, this is Luke 10, 21, at that time, 
Jesus was filled with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And then he says, Oh, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, I thank you. And I tried to picture his face. Like, honestly, if you just said to me when I wasn't giving this talk, you know, like, quick, what's Jesus' face like? I would think, you know, <laughs> like, I know me. That's what my face would be like if I were looking at me and seeing everything, you know. But Jesus' face was like transfigured with joy because of their obedience. And think what was at stake in that missionary journey. Everything, maybe it was Jesus like knowing that he knew that he knew that this thing was going to work. They did it. They did it. Do you think he celebrates that way over you? You know, I think he does. I think the scriptures say that this is, we delight the Father when we trust him, when we listen to him and we trust him. And then, let me close with this wonderful scene of delight from um, Isaiah 25. I love this. Um, this is a picture of the end. And it says, In Jerusalem, the Lord of heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet. And I love this because... I, one of my obediences when I first discovered this was that I was on a wine fast that um, God imposed upon me for my goodwill. Listen to the next line. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. There he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. He will remove forever the insults and mockery against his land and people. The Lord has spoken. In that day, the people will proclaim, This is our God. We trusted him and he saved us. This is the Lord in whom we trusted. Let us rejoice in the salvation he brings. Do you hear what I hear in that? It's like, let's not pretend we don't have any doubts. You know, everybody has doubts. Was that God? Is this God? We, tr we trusted in him. It was God. It was real. We trusted in him. And he's brought it all the way through to the end and us with him. It was right. It was true. Our trust was in the right place. It's a mutual delight, obedience is. Let's pray. Lord God, we hardly have words to bless you for the privilege you give us of being trained by your voice to do your will in the world. And what joy and strength that gives us and what an honor it is to be able to give you pleasure, Lord, by listening to you and following you. And Lord, you know our compromised, fearful, half-hearted hearts and the cry of our hearts is that you would continue to speak to us and that step by step in whatever it is you've called us to do, you would supply us by your Holy Spirit with the strength to respond and obey and be nourished. 
and bear fruit in this world. Give us the strength to hear and obey, Lord Jesus. We bless you for your word and for bringing us into your family. And um, we ask that you would help us to be your delight. And we thank you for being ours. And we pray in your name. Amen.